Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. We're going regional today, aren't we, Beth? We are. We absolutely are today. We're joined by Hugh Reese and Sean Kilcoyne, a brother and sister team of historians. They're very passionate about Welsh, Welsh history. They run the Welsh History Facebook page and they're here to talk to us about their first ever book on this day in Wales. Sean, Hugh, welcome to History Hack. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So I will start straight in with the first question. Considering your accents, it's probably an easy question for you. What inspired you to write about this subject? Uh, Well, um, I actually uh, relocated to Ireland 22 years ago now, and uh, I was 38 at the time Mm -hmm. and settled at that stage of my life. So it was like starting all over again, a, um, a sort of a real culture shock. So um, I decided to get to know more about Ireland, culture and history. And through discussions with my friends and work colleagues, um, in which I was sort of trying to uh, find out about Ireland, they would they would often ask me about Wales. And, it, and, and I realised that I didn't have as deep a knowledge as as, as I thought I had. So um, it also made me realise that the people outside of Wales maybe don't don't have a full understanding about who who, who we are, and um, but 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 we're keen to learn. So uh, to improve that knowledge, I began to do some research. And it was like opening a you know a door to passionate then about uh, Wales and its history, and how pr- and I was really proud of of how we had managed to retain our identity, mm. um, um, and not become a, a Western region of of of, um, of England really. <laughs> uh, oh, <laughs> I decided to post the information on on a Facebook page, which is called the History of Wales. Um, with information related to it each day. Uh, and, uh, and initially, the volume of information, it, it was like producing a newspaper. And um, so my sister, Sean, then um, offered to help me with, with the workload. Mm. And I, the, the page proved to be very, very popular and obviously struck a chord with, with people who were interested in Wales. The page now has more than 180,000 followers, mainly from Wales, but 
also from the wider diaspora, not just in the UK, but in the United States, Australia, New Zealand, all over the world, in fact, um, from United States to Pakistan. So uh, it has proved to be very successful. And last year, a publisher from the University of Wales Press got in touch with us. They approached us and asked whether we were interested in turning the social media page into a book. They suggested the the title Wales on this day. And so every day there's subject matter which can vary, very eclectic mix. It could be something sports-related, it could be historical, it could be a cultural event. Um, For example, the first words ever spoken on Coronation Street were by a Welsh actor. And of course, there are other cultural and historical events as well. This is brilliant. So what our plan for this episode is to just chuck stuff at you and you can tell us all about the awesomeness of Wales, um, which we're really excited about. Uh, This is one Chris has put on the list and it's such a Chris thing to put on the list. What is a Paget leg? Right. Okay. Well, basically, um, a Paget leg um, is an articulated wooden leg with movable joints at the knee, ankle, and toe. Um, It's also known as the Anglesey leg and was named after Henry William Paget, the first Marquess of Anglesey, who lived um, at Plasnewydd on Menai Strait, and he was the first person to use one. Um, The background of the story... um, when war broke out with um, Napoleon's France, Paget raised a regiment of volunteers and began a military career that saw him rise to the to the rank of major general. Um, during the the Battle of Waterloo, Paget was assigned as as the Duke of Wellington's second in command, um, and led the charge of the heavy cavalry against the centre of the French line. Um, he apparently had eight horses shot from under him, each time calling for another and carrying on fighting. Um, however, um, one of the last shots fired, Paget's right leg uh, was hit, necessitating this amputation above the knee. Um, five days after the battle, Paget was created Marquis of Anglesey, uh, by by the Duke of Wellington and appointed a Knight of the Garter. The artificial leg, however, um, didn't impede his, his further career. He went on to lead a distinguished public life, um, twice becoming Lieutenant of Ireland. Now, there's there's some quite sort of amusing um, anecdotes about his stoicism in this in, to, um, to, in this incident. According to one. Um, he explained, exclaimed to, to Wellington after he'd been hit, by God's to, I've lost my leg. Um, to which Wellington replied, by God's to, so you have. Um, and accordingly, uh, another comment was, um, um, how, how it was um, at the time of the amputation when he, he um, remarked to the surgeon, that the knives appear somewhat blunt. <laughs> <laughs> he was quite a character. And um, 
the amputated leg later became a tourist attraction in, in Waterloo. Um, and in 1816, the following year, a column was unveiled in Clanville um, Pushquingit um, on Anglesey commemorating his uh, heroism. So, because this is doing absolutely nothing with story number one for my notion that all Welsh people are a little bit insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also, as well, I want to know how you like, by the time you get down to horse number six and horse number seven, do you think the horses are all just lined up thinking, I'm not going? No, I'm not going either. No way. Yeah. I saw what happened to the last five. I'm staying here. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. So in, in your books, you do mention that this is something I like, as Alex knows. You mentioned how there's a, quite a lot of Welsh influence in the works of uh, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings and so on. And how uh, quite hilariously, I think that Elvish gets mistaken for Welsh. Now, having grown up um, going from where I live in the Midlands, going on repeated family holidays to North Wales, um, where Welsh is by far the common tongue. Um, as opposed to English, and hearing that Elvish is mistaken for Welsh, I find that quite, quite, quite funny, but actually quite, quite plausible too. Yeah, the connection with the Midlands is quite interesting because Tolkien himself lived in Birmingham as a child. He had quite a, a sad family history, really. His he mm. was born in South Africa, but um, his father tragically died very young of complications with rheumatic fever. So his mother, Mabel, took Tolkien and his younger brother to Birmingham, where they lived in not a particularly salubrious area of the city, very close to uh, a railway station. And Tolkien's first contact with Welsh was on the coal tracks, that would have been brought from North Wales and would have Welsh writing on them. And he actually said himself that the names, the language written on the trucks, brought, as he puts it, a flash of strange spelling and a hint of a language old and yet alive. It pierced my linguistic heart. So, yes, Tolkien's work is heavily influenced by Wales and especially the Welsh language. And many people have commented, just as you said, that the Elvish language, Sindarin, sounds very much like Welsh. And it appears that Tolkien not necessarily copied the words of Welsh, but the sounds, the lyricism and the musicality of the language which many people say that Welsh is very musical that does feature in in Sindarin mm. um, he was also very fond of the Welsh landscape and at a time when industrialization was transforming the British countryside he had quite a fondness for certain parts of Wales, particularly the area surrounding the Brecon Beacons, um, the Shire, for example, in The Hobbit and in Lord of the Rings, um, was possibly inspired by the landscape around Crickhowell and Brecon. Um, Crickhowell itself more or less equates to Crickhowell, 
it sounds similar. Crick Hollow, Crick Howell, they do have a very similar sound. And he actually claimed that the Lord of the Rings was his own interpretation of the mythical Red Book of Westmarch, which was based on the real-life Red Book of Herogest, one of the oldest and most important Welsh manuscripts of the Middle Ages. So he, he, he went on to study Welsh um, in university and possessed some very heavily personally annotated copies of the Mabinogion, for example, which is a collection of Celtic myths and Arthurian legends from medieval Wales. So, yes, his fondness, his love, his enthusiasm for the Welsh language manifests itself in many different ways in his work. And uh, uh, Dr. Carl Phelpsnet of Cardiff University actually said that for many of us, the language rings a bell or rather stirs deep harp strings in our linguistic nature. It's the native language to which in unexplained desire, we would still go home. Tolkien said, Welsh is of this soil, this island, the senior language of the men of Britain. Welsh is beautiful. And I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, let's go for something slightly less highbrow. Like, uh, Chris is adamant, being a Boaty historian, that we can't not ask you about the entry for International Talk Like a Pirate Day. Um, <laughs> Wales has quite a connection to it, doesn't it? And even a patron saint. But before we, uh, well, I suppose if there's any children listen, listening and before we start glorifying piracy, we should throw in the caveat that they, these weren't men acting for the greater good. They were in large, uh, vicious, selfish, uh, ruthless opportunists. So uh, we'll put that in. But that being said, it's still a good story. So uh, the 19th of September is international talk like a pirate day. And it gives us the opportunity to look at some of the historical Welsh, uh, Welsh connections to piracy. <clears throat> For example, St. Patrick um, arguably is Welsh um, and uh, was kidnapped by pirates before being taken to Ireland uh, and sold into slavery. Um, Gwynclu, um, king of Gwynclwyg, um a medieval kingdom in East Wales um, <clears throat> led a life of violence and piracy, uh, reportedly, uh, and caused terror across the Bristol Channel. However, uh, later in life, he gave up his life of terror and converted to Christianity, becoming the patron saint of Welsh pirates. So, uh, <laughs> the the the, the classic era of piracy and the one that's most often referred to is that which occurred in the Caribbean from around 1650 to, um, 17, to the 1720s. This was when uh, England, France and, and the Dutch began to de develop their competing empires and consequently there was a considerable amount of seaborne trade um, with many ships travelling with valuable cargoes being the targets for pirate attack, <coughs> excuse me, attacks. So uh, notable pirates from this era uh, would be Henry Morgan, 
um, who the, the famous rum is named after. Uh, he was a farmer's son from um, a place called Llan Rumney. Um, and Black Bart, uh, who was born John Roberts in Little Newcastle near Fishgard. Henry Morgan fought for the English against the Spanish in the Caribbean um, and helped establish Jamaica as, a, as an English colony. Uh, he was knighted by King Charles II and, and died a very rich man in uh, Jamaica in 1688. And um, a sort of an interesting point there that uh, at his funeral, an amnesty was declared that allowed fellow pirates uh, to pay their respects without fear or arrest. So that was, that's quite an interesting point. The um, Black Bart was uh, was one of the most successful pirates of the of the Golden Age. Uh, uh, reportedly responsible for the capture of over four hundred ships uh, and the equivalent of of over fifty million pounds of of loot. Um, his success was due in large part to his organisation. He was responsible for introducing the Pirates Code, which which gave every crew member a vote, um, encouraged prayer. Um, he also drank a lot of tea, apparently, and, and was opposed to alcohol uh, <laughs> and forbade gambling amongst the crew. Um, anyway, so um, towards the, the, the mid-18th century, uh, the improved efficiency of the country's navies and, and the authorities resulted in piracy being made far more difficult. And they were... There were far less uh, safe bases from which the pirates could operate. So this spelt an end to the golden age of piracy, but also um, saw uh, an increase in smuggling um, with the isolated beaches of, of North Wales and the Bristol Channel uh, being particularly popular landing sites for the illicit goods. Uh, one example um, is, is the Scottish-born John Paul Jones, who is often referred to as the father of the American Navy. Uh, he was active in the waters around Tenby and, um, and has a beach named after him uh, on, on Caldy Island. So, mm. yeah, the, the, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about the piracy. I'm sure, as I said, I grew up on holidays in North Wales and I'm certain the last time, I'm sure there's like in Barmouth, there's a, there's like a, a monument about smugglers and pirates. And it's been years yeah. since I went and looked at it. So I'd have to go and look at it again, but I'm certain it talks about smugglers because there's just, as I said, there's nothing, they're so isolated. There's nothing there. Yeah, um, no, that's right. It, you know, it's, 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 it's a remote area um, or was particularly in, in that time and and the the estuary the uh, the river that the Mouthach was would have been um, a very good um, area for them for the pirates to to sail from yeah absolutely the next question we're going to, I'm going to throw a particular date at you and uh, you can tell us all about this date uh, I'm, I'm quite intrigued by this date myself I haven't gone and looked up at this so I'm looking forward to the surprise what happened on the 10th of September 1814? Well, it's not a particularly salubrious story, I'm afraid, but quite an interesting one. Uh, 
that date, the 10th of September, the last recorded fatal pistol duel in Wales took place uh-huh. near Newcastle Emlyn. Uh, it's a story of jealousy, rivalry, lust, and violence. So, Outstanding. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, the story goes that um, a chap called Thomas Heslop, who was a native of West Indian, he was of West Indian origin and only recently arrived to Wales, was invited on a partridge shoot by a solicitor from Newcastle Emlyn and things didn't go too well. Um, Heslop was very unhappy with the way the day had panned out. He was disappointed with the shoot. Uh, He described it as a bad day's sport, simply because he hadn't been allowed to shoot where he wanted to shoot, at random in the Welsh countryside. So he was unhappy. His his friend, John Bynan, thought that he might try and diffuse this sort of situation, which was developing in a public place, uh, it was, in fact, in the old Salutation Inn overlooking the River Tyvey in Newcastle Emlyn. And to try and defuse the situation, um, he made a few derogatory remarks about the barmaid. Now, we don't know exactly what he said. That has to be left to the imagination. I was a barmaid for 11 years, I can imagine. So, yeah, you can you can just imagine the sort of thing that might have been said. However, um, this inflamed Heslop because he fancied the barmaid and wanted to defend her honour. Um, he objected to the coarse language that Bynan had used and he called Bynan a damned villain and a scoundrel and offered him, uh, challenged him to a duel, which Bynan accepted. And two days later, on Saturday, the 10th of September, 1814, they met in a field outside Newcastle Emlyn called Danwarfin Fields, through which ran a stream. Now, the two men stood one on either side of the stream with their backs to each other, and were to walk the 10 statutory paces forward before turning and firing their pistols. But um, Bynum, who probably was a damned villain and a scoundrel, only walked five paces before turning and shooting Heslop in the back. He was pronounced dead at the scene by a surgeon who was there, John Williams, and Bynum was prosecuted alongside the two seconds who had been there, appeared in Cardigan Crown Court, um, accused of shooting Thomas Hislop with a leaden bullet discharged from a pistol. They were found guilty, but because um, Bynum was big pals with a local JP and friends with a lot of solicitors. He was a solicitor himself. Um, He got the charge reduced to a fine. Now, that caused utter outrage locally. 
and they went looking for him. He was forced to hide in a cellar before escaping to America. The locals clubbed together. They gave Heslop, Thomas Heslop, a decent burial, and you will find a gravestone engraved with a last poor Heslop on it in um, Newcastle Emlyn in the church of Llandavriog nearby. So there we have it. Violence, violent death, lust, bloodshed, and a bit of scandal. The Welsh are exciting. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right, let's move fully into Beth and I's wheelhouse and the First World War. Why do the Welsh have a claim for saying that they carried out the first action of the First World War? Yes, um, well, uh, the First World War uh, is um, broke out on the 4th of August 1914 in Britain, between Britain and Germany, but and within a minutes of um, of of the uh, the outbreak, Newport police captured a German freighter called the Belgia, which was anchored in the Bristol Channel. The previous day, Germany had declared war on France, and the captain of the Belgia, fearing that he, he might be attacked by the French had headed what he thought would be the safe waters of um, South Wales. Um, This incident, during which 20 crew and 75 naval reservists were taken prisoners, therefore considered by many to be the first British action of the war against Germany. Um, There's there's an interesting um, story to it as well. As part of the cargo... The Belgia was carrying animals um, due for Hamburg Zoo, uh, which included alligators, chameleons, raccoons and rattlesnakes. And um, these mysteriously appeared in a market at um, Abergavenny a few days later. So uh, there was uh, that's what happened there. Um, the, The Belgia herself was commandeered by the Merchant Navy. Uh, and was renamed Hunstrike, um, and um, eventually, uh, and and remained in service until she she herself was sunk by a German U-boat uh, off Morocco in in nineteen seventeen. Love the thought of the in Abergavenny. Right, we're going to have these raccoons now. We're going to have these. <laughs> would, I'd say it would have, it would have been an unusual. <laughs> Items for sale in, in Abergavenny Market that week. Yeah. Would, yeah. Absolutely, definitely. Um, again, moving again slightly even more forward, we've we've got lots of very interesting stories to talk about, but we're going to pull it forward a little bit even more to the, the modern day. I'm very, very intrigued by this. How does a milkman from Wales link to the moon landings? Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Well, as we all know, Um, 20th of July 1969 saw Neil Armstrong becoming the first human to walk on the surface of the moon. But what many people don't know is that watching avidly from Earth was a man called George Abbey, who was the assistant director of the Johnson Space Centre and whose mother was from Larne in 
Carmarthenshire, which is incidentally where we're speaking to you from today, looking out at the castle and the estuary of the River Tarf. Now, Larn is famous for many things. <laughs> it's a small township uh, with a corporation, only one of, of two towns in the UK that have their original corporation. But anyway, George Abbey's mother was Alani. She lived in the Smith's Arm, Arms in Larne and went to work in London where she met Samuel Abbey, who was George Abbey's father. George, like all of us who know Larne, love the place so much that they have to come back and back and back. And he spent several um, happy childhood holidays in Larne, where he got very friendly with his mother's cousin, Dick Lewis, who was known as Dick the Farm or Dick the Milk, because he was the local milkman. Now, my mother, when she was in her teens, worked with Dick the Milk on the back of his truck pouring out milk into pe people's jugs as they travelled around Lan. Um, so there we are. There's a lovely family connection for us with this story too. Um, during the time that Dylan Thomas was living in Lan, now we all know Dylan Thomas is the famous Welsh poet who lived in the boathouse in Lan, which I can actually see through our living room window. Um, he became very friendly with Dick the Milk. They had an affinity. Dick the Milk was quite a, an astute and quite a learned man. He was self-taught, never went to university, but he and Dylan Thomas used to spend a lot of time together. In fact, they drank together every afternoon in the Browns Hotel in Lan, and Dick the Milk was one of the pallbearers at Dylan's funeral. Now, George Abbey, coming back to the moon landing, George Abbey was very keen on his Welsh roots. Um, he said there was a very strong Welsh feeling in our home because my mother spoke Welsh. And on one visit to Lan, he visited the boathouse, which has now been turned into a little museum of the life of Dylan Thomas, he asked them whether he could take something from the boathouse into space so that it could be verified and it would prove a bit of a tourist attraction. And so he did. The photograph of Dylan Thomas uh, went up in space and is now still in the boathouse in Lan for visitors to see. So there we are. He also, he, he tried to ensure that there was a Welsh angle to many of the space flights that he was connected with. And he told his staff that if the weather was good, I'd try to get the astronauts to get a picture of Wales because of my Welsh roots. Not often possible because there's so much <laughs> Wales. But yeah, that was, that was the connection between the moon landings and the milkman from Lan. Absolutely baffling. <laughs> that's quite. That's taken. That yeah. That's taken my breath away. Yeah, that has that story. I quite. I like that one. Um, I mean, 
Right, I'm going to keep giggling if I'm not careful. So now, right, let's revert to serious face and revert to serious story. Um, obviously, we've had there's some fantastic stories, and this book sounds like it's going to be an, amazing to read. Um, but there are obviously the gruesome elements. There's the bits that aren't so nice. Um, can you please tell us the story of Quartermaster, hence Thomas Lewis? <clears throat> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yes. Um, quartermaster, hence Thomas Lewis was from Moilvre on Anglesey. And his um, claim to fame is that he was one of three survivors um, of the 470 people on board um, a maritime disaster, um, which is considered to be one of the worst in New Zealand's history. In November 1874, the emigration ship Cospatrick was sailing from England to Auckland in New Zealand. The passengers were, were mainly agricultural workers and their families looking to make a fresh start in, in the, their new colony of New Zealand. Um, when they reached uh, the Cape of Good Hope, a fire broke out on board, um, thought to have been caused by a passenger carrying a candle in the cargo area of the ship that had accidentally set fire to some tar used for, for the ship's maintenance. Uh, the fire spread quickly and the ship uh, was, was quickly destroyed. In the resulting panic, um, only two of the lifeboats were able to be launched. Um, so the remainder of the passengers were, were, were lost with the ship. Um, a storm then moved in. And the lifeboats got separated. Uh, one sank with no survivors, and most of the occupants of the other lifeboat died due to exposure to the elements and, and lack of food. Um, and uh, the gruesome bit then is that the last of the survivors uh, reputedly then drank the blood and ate the livers of, of the dead people. Mm. Um, after seven days adrift, only five uh, were still alive uh, when they were rescued by a passing ship. And unfortunately, two more uh, died shortly afterwards. Um, 
ultimately then the the surviving three men were later put on trial for cannibalism um however there's no reports that they were they were convicted as as lewis returned to his native anglesey to live and um lived there for a further 20 years so that's that's the story of um, quartermaster hence thomas lewis that sounds like a very low budget, low budget Netflix film where they could get away with just one boat in some yeah. water and about yeah. three cast yeah. members. Um, let's go big scale though. Uh, tell us about the effect that Wales has on the Roman Emperor Maximus. Ah, oh, the Romans! What do the Romans ever do for us? <clears throat> yeah, we, as we know, the Romans were hugely influential in Wales and you travel the length and breadth of the country and you're never going to be far from a Roman fort or a Roman gold, silver, copper or tin mine. They're everywhere. Um, We've all seen pictures of the magnificent um, Roman amphitheatre in Caleon, for example. There were huge forts in Cardiff in Bracken, and of course in North Wales, in Carnarvon. Um, They also built a few roads. But towards the end of the Roman rule, when the structure of the Roman Empire started breaking down, we're talking now about the late 4th century, things started to go a little bit pear-shaped. And during that time, Magnus Maximus was assigned to Carnarvon, firstly as a general in the Roman army in the year 380. He settled there and he even got a Welsh name. In Wales, he's known as Maxen Wledig. He settled and he married the daughter, excuse me, of the Romano-British ruler, Octavius. Her name was Ellen. And Ellen encouraged Maximus in his enterprises, and she encouraged him particularly to build roads in order that the country be more easily defended. Now, one of the most popular walking routes in Wales is along the Roman route of Sarn Helen, which was named after Ellen. It runs from Carnarvon in the north to South Wales. Um, more recently, Maxen Wledig, Maximus, has become something of a folk hero based on the largely fictionalised account in the Mabinogion, which I mentioned earlier. That was the um, book of medieval Welsh legends. Um, and in it is a section called Maxen's Dream, Braithoid Maxen Wledig. And in the dream, he dreams of becoming Emperor of Rome. He's portrayed as a bit of a national hero in the song by um, David Iwan, who's a renowned Welsh folk singer. The song is called Amao Heed. And you may well hear it on a regular basis fairly soon because the song has been adapted as the anthem of the Welsh football team who are embarking on their, I'm sure, successful attempt at winning the World Cup. We'll see about that one. 
But in truth, Maxen was actually chosen by his men as Emperor of Britain and Gaul. And in 383, he overreached himself slightly because he declared himself as Western Emperor. For a time, he was recognised as such by Theodosius, who was the Eastern Emperor. But ultimately, in war and politics, they fell out. They clashed in their bid for imperial power. And Theodosius campaigned against Maximus and defeated him in the Battle of Save in modern-day Croatia. Maximus pleaded for his life, but was executed on the 28th of August, 388. Now, his legacy is in his descendants. Um, he, the marriage of Maximus and Ellen resulted in a string of British descendants. Their daughter, Severia, is commemorated on the pillar of Eliseg, an early medieval inscribed stone near Llangollen in the Vale of Dee, which says on the pillar that she was married to Vortigern, king of the Britons. Now, this would have made Maximus the founding father of several royal dynasties in Wales, including those of Powys and Gwent. And those kings would later use the authority of Magnus Maximus of Maxenuledig as the basis of their inherited political legitimacy. So there we have Maxenuledig, Welsh emperor. I didn't. I didn't even know that at all. That was that's such an interesting connection there. But as you as you say quite rightly, the Romans they just get everywhere, don't they? Um, sp- speaking of then invaders. Um, Obviously, the Roman invasion of Britain went fairly well, all things considered. But generally, invasions of Wales itself don't go very, very well. Fishguard is obviously a very well-known example of that. Um, but there's there's other invasions, isn't there? And there's particularly one that's from from the, the there was a Flemish invasion, wasn't there? The, the, yes, there was uh, probably not that well known. Um, in on the second of January, eleven fifty-five, Munt Bay, which is a few miles north of Cardigan, was the site of a, of an un, unsuccessful Flemish invasion of the Kingdom of De Habarth in in West Wales. Um, the Flemish soldiers that landed were heavily defeated by the native Welsh and um, the victory is celebrate, was celebrated in later centuries um, by a festival known as Seal Corchamunt or, or Red Sunday, uh, a reference to the bloodshed um, during the invasion. The, the, the background to the invasion is uh, interesting and the Flemish um, 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 were um uh, on uh, of of how they um they appeared on in in Wales William the conqueror's wife Matilda was the daughter of Baldwin V count of Flanders and um many flemish fought for william during the norman invasion of england in 1066 and were subsequently 
rewarded with land holdings. So uh, by the 12th century, the early 12th century, Flanders was becoming overpopulated and combined with a devastating flood in 1106, more Flemish people um, wanted to move to England. So uh, initially they were welcomed, but due to the numbers, uh, friction soon developed between them and, and, and the English. So the, the then king of, of England, Henry I's solution, was to drive out um, the native Welsh um, of parts of, of West Wales and, and, and to colonise the, the Flemish people there. Henry died in 1135 and the following um, succession crisis, which the, the anarchy, um, resulted in a civil war that, la that lasted until um, 1153 when his grandson Henry II took the throne. So unsurprisingly, Welsh rulers took advantage of, of, of the anarchy um, to regain disputed lands that, that um, they, they had lost during the, the, the Norman invasion of, of, of Wales. Um, um, but Henry II set about trying to reverse this trend and, and the invasion in Munt was probably part of this process. Uh, the, the, there's an interesting connection as well in Pembrokeshire with the Flemish people as well. Um, um, and um, there's a border between, so, between South and North Pembrokeshire, which to this day is referred to as the Lanska Line, where um, the, the southern area was remained under the control of the Normans and the Flemish and, and the native Welsh were um, uh, occupied the, 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 the northern area. Um, Haverford West Castle, for example, was, was, was built by a Flemish leader called Tancred and Wizen Castle nearby uh, by the wonderfully named Wizzo. Um, and and there, there was also a Lettard, Littelking, built a castle in, in nearby Letterston. Uh, the Flemish were also skilled woolen traders, and um, Tenby in southern Pembrokeshire flourished as, as a trading centre subsequently. Um, now, one um, um, uh, thing that, that, that happened with the, um, the, the Flemish... Uh, influence was that the Welsh language was eradicated in this area and replaced with um, a Flemish dialect of English and there are still um, traces of that that can be identified today such as um, the word budger is used for butcher, uh, catchy pole for tadpole and frost candles for icicles. And this uh, leads, has led to the area being referred to as Little England Beyond Wales. I love that. I am all only ever going to refer to icicles as frost. Uh, that, that's just... Frost, frost candles, yeah. That's just fantastic. That's oh, literally... just, just playing into her whole I'm a Disney princess Frozen vibe that you've got going on in her head at this point. Um, <laughs> Should we try and let's smash out a couple more before we run out of time? Okay, uh, so back in my wheelhouse, Titanic, right? So there are three Welsh connections to Titanic. Now, one of them's going to be Harold Lowe, isn't it, in the north of Wales? But what else have you got for us? 
Oh, Harold, Harold Lowe, of course, yes, from Llanros in Carnarvonshire, was the fifth officer uh, on the Titanic. But he was the only one who rowed back to save drowning passengers. God I don't know how, how far you back you've listened to History Hack, but we have had Yoan Griffith on the show, and I'm pretty yeah. sure it made it into the episode because we made him do that. Is there anyone alive out there? <laughs> bit so Because we had to hear it. Yeah, well, but that that isn't the the main connection. Um, when the Titanic sank in the North Atlantic on the fifteenth of April in nineteen twelve, there was somebody three thousand miles away listening on his homemade radio, and this chap was Artie Moore, who was an amateur wireless operator from Blackwood, which is a small town in the South Wales Valleys. And he was probably the first person to hear the distress signals from the Titanic. Now, he ran straight away to the local police force to try and relay the news and to alert the authorities. But nobody believed him. They refused to believe in 1912 that it was possible to pick up a message in the air. And it was two days before the news finally officially broke. There are a couple of other connections. Um, There was a boxer, two boxers from Wales, actually, on the Titanic. Um, He was Welsh lightweight champion from Treherbert. His name was David John Bowen. And he was travelling to the United States for a series of boxing contests with his fellow boxer, Leslie Williams from Tonopandi. And two days prior to the sinking of the Titanic, he had written a letter to his mother saying that this is a lovely boat. She is very near so big as Treherbert. So that's rather a nice one. Not many people know either that the cutlery, the silverware on the Titanic was Elkington silverware from Burryport in South Wales. And finally, everyone in Wales knows about Wrexham Lager. And Wrexham Lager was the main beer that was served in the bar on the Titanic. There we are. Outstanding. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, um, Just to bring things, because... I think we could listen to, I could listen to stories about the stories for this book for hours and hours and hours. They're just so fascinating. Um, but to bring it all to a sort of nice, tidy conclusion, um, there's so many great historical personalities that I'm sure are mentioned in this book and that we haven't managed to talk about today. Um, and people that we don't know about and that we should. And one of those is mentioned in your book. And this is William Herbert Barron of Cardiff. Who is William, please? <laughs> uh, well, uh, yes. Well, the, the the story of William Herbert emphasises the uh, the subjugation of Wales in the 13th century by Edward I and, and subsequently the um, Act of Union of Henry VIII in 1536, where individuals loyal to the crown were rewarded with land in Wales. Um, William Herbert's family, for example, had come to prominence at the Battle of Agincourt and during the Wars of the Roses. In his youth, uh, William was described 
as a mad fighting fellow um, and was forced to flee, uh, to flee to France after he'd killed a man in a fight in Bristol. In France, uh, he joined the service of King Francis I and earned the reputation of being a brave and courageous soldier. soldier. So much so that when he decided to return to Britain, Francis recommended him for a senior role in Henry VIII's court. Um, and he subsequently became a highly influential figure in the Tudor royal court. Um, he met and married Anne Parr, who was the, the sister of Henry's sixth wife, Catherine Parr. And when Henry died in 1547, uh, William Herbert acted as the executor to his will and was a guardian of the young King Edward VI. He was created Baron Herbert um, in reward on 10th of October 1551, which also gave him uh, uh, Caffilly Castle, control of Caffilly Castle and extensive lands in, in South Wales. Following Edward's uh, sixth death, uh, Herbert became involved um, in the plan to, to place the Protestant Lady Jane Grey on the throne but was wise enough that when it became clear that um, Lady Mary Tudor would take the throne, uh, he wisely switched his allegiance um, and acted as an escort for Mary's future husband, King Philip of, of Spain, on his journey to London. Um, Herbert's good relations then continued uh, with a close friendship with, um, with Queen Elizabeth I. Um, interestingly then as well, Cardiff Castle and Estate passed through the Herbert family, um, but through marriage um, it um, landed with the, the Marquis of Butte, who's, um, who is well known in the, in the Cardiff area. Uh, he was instrumental in the development of Cardiff as a port when the, when the Welsh coal industry boomed in the 19th century. Uh, which made the the the, the Marquis of Bute um, family extremely wealthy, and they were able to rebuild Cardiff Castle in the grand sort of style that that, that you see today. Um, however, uh, following World War One, uh, where the coal industry went in, into decline, uh, and, and followed by the depression of the nineteen thirties, uh, in nineteen forty seven, the fifth Marquis inherited the castle, um, but facing considerable death duties, he sold the remainder of the lands in Cardiff and gave the castle uh, to the people of Cardiff. Oh, what a way to end. Guys, thank you so much. This has been absolutely brilliant. Uh, this has been an hour of fun filled uh, and stuff I didn't know as well. If you'd have asked me, like, what is there about Wales? I would like, ah, there's some Tudor stuff and some, some like, some fighty people and some King Arthur and that's about it uh, and absolutely it's clearly not uh, people can join you on your Facebook page it's the history of Wales as well and we will of course put your book in our new uh, in our um, online bookstore but guys thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories with us thank you very thank much you. Thank, thank you thank you for hosting us our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster as a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 
10% of every sale via our bookshop, supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.